Welcome back to the Ball Cities podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Manasi. Today, we have Maria. And Maria, if you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Yeah. Hello, everyone. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Maria. I'm a producer and a digital entrepreneur. Uh, my background is in journalism and fashion. Uh, currently, I uh, run a bunch of projects. Some of them are in Web3 and some of them are in fashion. And I'm really excited to talk about them with you. Oh, that's perfect. Um, so one of the things that I found really interesting about your background is that you actually had a really strong experience in journalism, uh, specifically journalism for travel, as well as related to like culture and fashion. So I was curious to hear how you first got into journalism and um, why that ended up being the foundation for other things you eventually worked on. Yeah, sure. I think... Um... Ever since I can remember myself, since very, very young age, I had two very strong interests. One of them was writing and journalism. I mean, any kind of, you know, media. So writing, uh, film, photo. Uh, and the second one was business. <laughs> so when I was very, very young, I remember I was writing a business plan, how to buy the biggest toy store in my town. Uh, but at the same time, I was really, really into writing. I was participating in all the all kinds of uh, literary competitions in school and later in high school, university. Uh, so I actually started my journalistic career very early. Uh, when I was 13, I started working at a local uh, newspaper. I mean, obviously I was in school, so not full-time, but I was writing uh, pieces for them here and there. A lot of them were covering some art exhibitions. They were commissioning uh, tiny little pieces for me, and I was really excited for that. Uh, and during the summer uh, that year, when I was 13, I also took my first, um, I think it was a two or three month internship at a local um, newspaper and a radio station. So I was uh, doing my original programs for radio, recording them collecting all the material uh they're very chill topics like you know local high school graduation and stuff like that so nothing too heavy but it was really really exciting and um yeah that's how it started and since then I haven't stopped writing um nowadays I, I guess it's a bit less but I really miss it and hope to get back to it um soon as well but yes yeah, since uh I was 13 and then I continued in my high school I founded uh, a newspaper back in my hometown in high school and then I when I moved to the U.S. I also wrote for um the newspaper and then when I went to BU Boston University I started writing for uh the Vaz magazine there I wrote about fashion about travel uh and also for the Daily Free Press which is an amazing newspaper daily newspaper at Boston University so there I wrote about business and tech, a uh, whole a lot of topics, really. Um, yeah, so that was my right. And after that, I also uh, started working as a producer, and that kind of was the foundation of my later my career at Harper's Bazaar and Savar Flair, local publications here in the Middle East. Uh, so I. I started working at a TV station. Again, Boston University has uh, an amazing program where you can, you know, apart from your academic experience, also work at a real TV station that really airs. Um, so it's a really an amazing experience for all the students. So I started working at um, on that point. It was a political current event TV show, uh, look, recorded live, a lot really interview heavy. So I started working on camera, you know, the subtitles, easy things like that. And then I transitioned into hosting sometimes. I la later on, I became a producer, uh, focused on marketing, on basically putting the whole show together, you know, coming up with a topic, inviting guests, working on marketing. So that was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah, so from then on, uh, I went into a more professional career after I graduated. Sorry, I, uh, I hope I didn't ramble too much. 
No, it was so interesting to hear about the wide vastness of your experience. And it was so cool to see how writing continued to be a theme, not only in your childhood, but also later on in your professional career. I think the really interesting thing about writing as a skill set is that it's just so transferable to anything else that you do. So you mentioned how you transitioned from writing into production. I mean, if you can write, you can write scripts, right? You can write really uh, high quality um, like frameworks for what can be high quality content. So I thought that was a really cool aspect of your career and your professional journey. And something else I was wondering is, um, how did you choose what to write about? Like, um, what did you usually gravitate towards? Uh, yeah, and what you just said also, I 100% agree. I think it doesn't even matter what form your storytelling takes you know it can be photography it can be film it can be writing uh it's all about storytelling really and uh, i think that's a pivotal skill in any career uh you choose to have uh but um sorry uh your question was how did i decide what to write actually uh i remember very early on when i just started writing my first articles or first uh poems stories i wrote all sorts of stuff uh i had this question very heavy like how do i decide what to write about there's so many different topics how do i decide what to focus on and i asked this question to one of my um you know one of the journalists that i really admired so i went to some kind of meetup with him uh, I, I remember i was also 14 or 13 years old and uh, he was like you know if you're a journalist that's not even a question you always know what to write about and i was so discouraged in that moment because i was like well i want to be a journalist and i don't know what to write about uh but later on i think i started understanding what he what he meant i guess it's just about curiosity and that's the main quality any journalist or any storyteller should have. You should just be curious uh, about everything, literally everything in your life. So I don't know from how do they make this grocery bag that I get in the market and how does it impact the environment to, you know, who who is what's the story behind this new fashion line that was just produced. So you need to be curious about every little thing. And then naturally you'll have so many ideas of what to write about, about things that you, you know, discover and you didn't know before, but you want to explore more and you want more other people to learn about as well. So I guess if I would never have done my answer, curiosity. I love that. I think that's such a huge component of what we do here at Boss Cities and how we run our podcast, even the types of questions that we choose to ask. Um, so the last thing I want to ask about like your early life in your career um, was how do you think taking a lot of experience and travel impacted your worldview? Uh, in a very essential core way, I think I'm from an extremely international, uh, diverse and complicated background. I'm sure you can hear from my accent um so yeah from an early age I moved a lot my parents are from different countries I grew up in a third country I went to study in another country now I'm in the Middle East it's uh, a lot of different cultures a lot of different languages a lot of different cultures um and I think it's just it makes you a bit more open to really anything actually it makes you a bit more open so you kind of realize early in life that there's so many different perspectives and different points of view views so you don't have to go through this you know stage when you're my my life view is the only one you kind of already understand that there's so many different takes on the same thing so I guess it makes you a bit more open open-minded and uh, I guess willing to you know learn accept change yeah just yeah, I guess also that, like before yeah. oh go ahead go ahead yeah, I, I wanted to add also, it's not all positive. Also, very, very confused. It makes you very, very confused about who you are because you feel like you don't belong anywhere. You feel like you belong everywhere, but at the same time, nowhere because, you know, it's uh, anywhere you go, you're kind of alien. So it's not only good. <laughs> That's a really interesting perspective. I never thought about it from like a, I guess, feeling alien standpoint, but 
I, I think that it's like so cool to hear even just like you being able to gain so many different perspectives and for extended periods of time too, right? Like it wasn't just a few weeks, but you know, actually like moving there and living there, I think it was like really interesting to hear. But I also wanted to ask how sort of you felt like maybe your writing changed as you moved from different like places. So, you know, even moving to the Middle East, like was there a different range of topics that you covered or I guess like did your writing style, like was that influenced in any way by the place that you were living? Mm, I'm trying to think. To be honest, I, I'm not sure how it, how it was affected by me moving I because I was also growing up. So I think, I'm, I'm not sure if it was me moving or me maturing as a writer and as a person. I mean, I, I can answer how it was changing. So uh, I think at an early early stage, it was very, very, a lot of adjectives. <laughs> so a lot of feelings, a lot of adjectives, the desire to show, you know, all the amazing fancy words that I know and uh, really express myself as much as possible. And later on, it became a bit more, uh, you know, Hemingway style in a sense that show, but don't uh, show, don't tell. So a bit less uh, adjective driven. I guess it, it's, a, it's a very technical answer to your question, but uh, yeah, I guess that's the main, that's the main point. And, you know, uh, concise, trying to be concise, I guess still not as concise as I want to be, um, but trying and trying and understanding that uh, you don't have to, you have to explain complex things in a very simple way. And that's the real art, not you writing something that sounds really fancy and smart, but actually explaining really complex ideas in a simple way. I guess that's the main change and still I'm in that uh, transition. <laughs> I find it so fascinating to hear about how your writing evolved and I actually love the technical answer because I'm like a linguistics nerd and I love like analyzing different types of writing. Um, just a random recommendation I have for anybody um, is to listen to the New York Times Modern Love because the essays are like so vivid. It's like a wonderful example of storytelling and I love how you said um, like really like high quality writing is about being able to explain like complex things in a simple way that anyone can understand. Um, but something else I was also curious about um, is how come you're based in Dubai currently? And the reason I also ask is because Dubai is a really interesting place um, for the NFT um, and Web3 ecosystem. Yeah, I think Dubai is an interesting place for pretty much any uh, area of interest. It's an amazing new hub. It's so international. There's so many opportunities. Uh, I mean, I'm really... Uh, grateful to this place for what opportunities and you know friendships it gave me uh but how come so <laughs> i guess there are three three reasons i was in the us and um i was really excited to go somewhere else for a bit i mean i, I love the us but uh, i was a bit fed up so i wanted to go to a new place um and well, my fiance now my fiance is here <laughs> and we met when I was living in the U.S. he was living in Dubai and we decided to well meet somewhere in the middle and our only criteria was uh, the language so we can you know work and operate in English so Dubai was seemed like an amazing option and uh, I mean that, that's probably not <laughs> what you want to hear but that's an honest answer uh, love but uh, at the same time it gave me an amazing head career start I don't think I mean, I was uh, a great student and everything, but I don't think I would get such opportunities that I got in Dubai uh, in the US this early in my career. So I was very, very, um, I was very grateful to have them. Yeah, starting my journalistic career full-time in Harper's Bazaar was great. <laughs> no, I think it's still like a completely valid answer and it still ended up being um, like a really great investment to live here. And I see like a lot of your journey is sort of like, um, geographically bound in certain ways but I was going to say um, 
how did you get into like luxury fashion in the tech space? Um, when did that become like a curiosity point for you? Um, honestly, that was a complete, just a random, you know, fate thing that happened. Uh, because when I was in the U.S., I, I did write about fashion a little bit, but I was more focused on politics and current events of that direction. And once I moved to Dubai, uh, just an amazing opportunity presented itself. I was pretty much looking for anything in journalism at a great publication. So I just wanted to work with an amazing team and grow. And that opportunity with Harper's Bazaar came along. And that was my first uh you know, proper experience in fashion. And I was always passionate about it. I wouldn't say that I knew so much about it. I learned as I went, um, but I was extremely curious. I always loved, you know, to dress up and learn about brands and history of different houses. Uh, so that was that was kind of the transition. And uh, later on after Harper's Bazaar, so both at Harper's Bazaar, I worked as an editorial producer, mostly producing digital shoots. So I very quickly learned uh, all things, you know, how they operate digitally, uh, from how they, you know, manage the content between the print publication and digital publication to how they uh, just like manage all of their content and produce specifically digital shoots. And later on, when I transitioned to Savoir Flare, which is an amazing, uh, my favorite actually publication in the Middle East, uh, they are the first, one of the first digital publications in the whole world, actually. Uh, and that was a very uh, intense digital experience right away, you know, learning about different metrics and uh, campaigns and what things perform online, what things don't. So that was kind of uh, how fashion and the digital space happened for me. I don't know if it makes sense. <laughs> Let me know. No, that definitely makes sense. And that's that's so interesting because you like kind of answered a lot of questions that I was meaning to ask you in terms of um kind of you transitioning towards like all means of production you know not just writing but also working with the digital publication and doing all of these different um skills and all of these things just through one you know media company which I think is so cool um but I also wanted to ask I know that you know at Harper's Bazaar and especially at Savoir Flair you were you know working with some really high scale brands and just working on really interesting projects with them um and some of those projects I found really cool because they're not ones that I've really come across just you know in art, like media that I read or media that I consume regularly, but I just thought it was super interesting and you know wanted to talk more about that. But um, I was wondering if maybe you could give some examples of some of the higher scale projects that you worked on at Savoir Claire and like maybe what you found to be like one of the most notable projects that you worked on. Uh, sure. It's it's a very difficult question because there's so many. I'm going to just ramble for an hour. I can talk about it for hours, really. I had such an amazing experience there and so many incredible, incredible shoots and opportunities with brands. I mean, I can just name a few of my favorites. So uh, a really huge project I uh, took on at Savoir Flair was uh, SFX, which is a book to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the publication, which uh, is a very, very special project. And it was massive uh, production work, actually very interesting because it was reversed, usually publication go from print to digital and this was kind of a publication that was always digital went for the first time in history print uh, so it was a massive uh, beautiful expensive uh, coffee table book uh, produced by Oseline so the you know the benchmark immediately is so so high they're the best uh, publishers in the luxury space and uh, basically the job was to produce um, dozens of shoots uh, book-worthy shoots in a very tight, uh, short period of time. And that was quite an experience. I mean, I think my favorite shoot from the book. Uh, and the goal was also to get amazing designers, amazing models, amazing, just all around stellar teams, which was a challenge. At the same time, dealing with uh, all of the usage rights. It was really an interesting um, 
huge learning curve as well, an interesting experience. But my favorite shoot from the book was um, was Dior and uh, an amazing uh, woman photographer, Ellen Manonverf. Uh, if you're not familiar with her work, I really suggest you go online and take a look. She's uh, an absolute you know, pioneer and her work is just amazing, incredible, uh, vibrant and so different, recognizable. And uh, we made a shoot and all of our shoots at Savar Flair always, always had uh, a big story behind it. So nothing was just, you know, just take pictures. Everything had a storyline that made sense with the history of the brand and, you know, the new collection. And it was really, really well uh, thought out. It was me and uh, our fashion fashion director working in it so it was a shoot about a girl who uh who's a great traveler and she uh she's super eclectic and she brings all these different cultures to the table and uh, it was a glimpse into her life into into her home so it was a very interesting work with a set designer you know uh outsourcing all kinds of eccentric props like uh Tibetan pipe or you know collection of butterflies a lot of really really cool props so it was a really interesting uh, an amazing beautiful project um some of my other favorite ones, uh, we did an amazing Bottega Veneta shoot, which is my favorite brand. And uh, again, it was an amazing Savoir Flair team. Uh, the idea was strobe effect. So it's when you, in photography, when the object is moving and you photograph it and you see the trajectory of movement, uh, which is a quite, quite a cool you know, um, milestone in photography. And we pictured all those amazing outfits that are that have a lot of patterns, a lot of movement in them was a strobe effect. Uh, and it turned out really, really good. Um, and I would say, I, I, again, I can go on and on about this, but I would say the third one is um, our story for Gucci. So we worked directly with the headquarters of Gucci to produce this uh, super, super cool campaign. Uh, and it was called, I Can't Believe My Eyes. And the idea was that, uh, I don't know if you took a look at it on our on my LinkedIn and our website, but the idea was that something that you see is not actually what you think it is at first, but actually something completely different and random. So it's it's quite a crazy shoot. Um, and we actually got an award for this. Um, yeah, so that, that was an amazing experience. But I can go on and on. There's so many incredible projects. <laughs> I hope I'm not boring you. <laughs> no, not at all. It's so interesting to hear about these because... I don't know. I am definitely not someone that's like well immersed in the fashion space. And so, you know, as a consumer of some of these ads and someone who just like sees them when I'm like walking down streets or cities or whatever, um, you know, we only see the front end of them. But to think about, you know, all the strategic planning and the effort and um, partnerships that go into creating these campaigns um, and the like, huge like large scale partnerships is like super interesting to hear, especially thinking about like the diversity of like projects you're working on, because you're not just working on right just writing books or just you know doing campaigns but kind of like everything in between also and to think of like the versatility of skills that I'm sure you know the team at Savoir Flair had like that just sounds so interesting to work with people who are able to bring to life so many different types of creations and it kind of reminds me of like a design studio because that's essentially what it is it's like you're designing different forms of media which is so cool to think about and sounds like a really interesting place to work for sure but um, I also wanted to ask I guess like how these ideas were generated. So would it be like brands that would, you know, had this idea or had this vision come to you or would you sort of collaborate with brands and like come up with this idea together? Um, and I guess like whose ideas would be put on the table and like how did that sort of collaboration come to life? And I'm sure it was different depending on like who maybe you were working with, but um, just wanted to uh, hear more insight on, you know, if they were the ones kind of bringing the ideas to the table or if you found that a lot of these like, you know, high tier brands were also like receptive to some of your ideas, like what was that partnership like? 
Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And there's so many different examples. Like there's definitely no template, you know, on how this happens um, because every campaign has its own, you know, requirements and KPIs from the brand side. Of course, in the end of the day, they want to sell their product uh, and, you know, different restrictions depending on the regions, depending on the brands, just a lot of, a lot of different criteria is something that you uh, probably wouldn't even think about, but uh, a lot of guidelines. But um, I would say that in general, they were receptive and very rarely uh a brand would know exactly what they want. They would have some guidelines, again, depending on some of them would be, you know, we have this budget, we have this campaign, create something amazing, like put your ideas forward. I mean, of course, the first stage is, um, you know, ideation when you uh, either, you know, the budget or you don't, but you put forward a few different creatives. Sometimes it's one very strong one. Sometimes it's uh, a few different ones and they choose and they give you feedback. Then it evolves a little bit. So there are a lot of uh, steps and stages, but in general, we were, our team was extremely involved and, uh, most of the time we would be the ones fully, you know, coming up with concepts. Uh, and our team was, again, I'm, uh, you can hear that I'm a great fan of this, uh, publication, but, uh, we were all extremely creative, all of us. And, uh, it was really an amazing brainstorm and a lot of synergy when we would be talking about the brand and, you know, really first, uh, researching in, in in a very you know comprehensive way um, the history of the brand, the goal of the campaign, the everything they did before, everything their competitors did before, uh, and then all of us, or rather like the key players, so myself and our fashion director would be coming up with a few ideas, and then we'd have an internal meeting when all of us you know present our ideas, and then the end goal is to you know it's, there's no ego, the end goal is to come up with the best idea possible, so we choose what what direction we're going in and then all of us again contribute and it evolves again there's so many uh layers of this evolution and that's how it was born i mean that's how it was born for uh so for example for Bottega shoot that i mentioned it was again all of my team everyone was kind of like throwing ideas and that was my concept that in the end got uh chosen but everyone contributed so much and it evolved a lot and for example the gucci shoot was our amazing uh fashion director grace so that was her idea and again it evolved and we all you know added to and really helped to flesh it out so it was really a collaborative process but yes to answer your questions uh to answer your question most brands were quite receptive because what's the point of you know coming to someone and then um not letting them but by this logic you can just produce it in-house and a lot of them have uh at least you know some small in-house teams when they come to us they want our expertise and our ideas that's so interesting to hear and it's good to hear that brands, you know, are receptive to these ideas. And I'm sure that, um, you know, you are kind of the experts in bringing that, you know, campaign to life. So that makes sense. And that was really cool how you talked about also researching the history of the brand, too, because it's not just about who the brand is portraying now, but how, you know, consumers have perceived them in the past, right? And what their values and sort of their, like, I guess, campaigns have been in the past, because that seems like very important foundation to establish when you're kind of moving forwards, even if that brand is you know, wanting to take a redirection or wanting to do something different. So that's cool to hear. And, um, you know, I guess this relates a little bit to the, my past question as well, but obviously these are, you know, brands that have audiences that generate billions of dollars of revenue and you know, super um, luxury and high scale brands also. But I guess when you're, you know, working with companies like this, how do you kind of take risks when it comes to production? I guess, was that something you encountered in terms of like, you know, if a brand wants to do something really out there or really exciting, I know you're talking about, for example, um, you know, you being a digital publication and actually bringing this book to life and having like a print version of that book. So, you know, things like that, that I'm sure are very costly and potentially risky, I guess. How do you sort of, um, 
negotiate that with brands? How do you sort of, you know, I guess, decide what is an appropriate risk to take and how do you sort of, I guess, go about that kind of process in terms of like risk taking? Um, I think it really, again, comes down to what is the brand? So there's some brands that are, <laughs> I don't want to specifically name because maybe they want to evolve in the future, but there's some brands that are, you know, super high end and we all know, and they're quite conservative and they know exactly what their DNA is and they don't want to necessarily experiment with it much. Um, and of course we, we, we were working with them all the time. So most of the brands we already had, you know, a few campaigns with or, you know, campaigns every month or every quarter. So we're familiar, we're familiar, quite familiar with most of them and knew what would they be receptive to. Uh, and there are some brands who just, who want to take risks or, I mean, again, and what do we mean by take risks? There, it's an investment uh, into either it's an editorial piece, which means that um, it's a it's a creative campaign, but it's mostly our direction, and it's not going to be uh, basically the rights belong to us as a publication, uh, and our you know our summer flare stamp is there. It belongs to the publication, but it's still promoting some of their collections, or it can be white label. White label means that uh, it's fully their assets. So once we produce it, we transfer the creative and all of the usage rights to the brand. So it belongs to them and they can do and go and do with whatever, with it, whatever they, sorry, <laughs> they can go and do with it, whatever they want. I mean, of course, within the agreed uh, usage rights, but uh, if it is the white label, it's kind of on them to decide how much they want to, you know, go crazy or risk. But if it's editorial, then uh, we're putting ideas forward. They need to agree. Um, but it's a lot of planning as well. So when we say like taking risks, like, of course, we wouldn't do something that's, um, completely crazy for the brand. We're of course assessing, uh, you know, the KPIs. For example, they want to generate a certain number of views or clicks or even proper conversions. So we everything was super measured and uh, planned ahead of time. And even you know we we worked during uh, COVID, which was a very interesting time. And uh, a risk would be even to schedule a shoot because someone can get unfortunately the virus, and we would have to you know we'd have to get tested all the time. Someone might come positive and then the whole shoot is uh, compromised or we have to postpone it and there are deadlines and stuff like that. So I guess there, because because there's so many people involved, sometimes a shoot would involve 50 people or you know, 30, 40 people. Uh, there's a great chance that someone will not show up or be late or uh, get sick. So there's always this risk factor, but uh, that's producer's job to make sure uh, she or he gets out of the situation or whatever situation they get in. I had situations when, for example, I'm at a shoot and in the morning, the wrong model comes in. And it's actually very crucial to have that specific model because, for example, for a brand, we don't want to shoot a blonde girl. We want to shoot a Middle Eastern looking girl and then a completely wrong model shows up. So uh, you need to deal with a lot of unexpected uh, things on the spot. But yeah, uh, I guess to summarize my answer, uh, it's a lot of planning, a lot of assessment, um, a lot of conversation with the brand to see what they're comfortable with and uh, and also accepting that it's honestly very unlikely that you have, you know, a shoot with 40 people that everything goes completely smoothly. It's pretty much impossible. Something will go wrong. You just need to be able to manage it on the spot. It's really interesting here to hear about like um, fashion shooting experiences specifically because it's not something I ever think about or look into. It reminds me a lot of like event planning and how whenever you plan an event, something always goes wrong. It's just the nature um, of having a scale that includes so many people. Um, something else that I was also curious about though is um, how can we bring technology to the forefront of culture? Um, and what does this culturalization of technology look like um, from your experience? 
Well, I think uh, it's a very interesting question, uh, but I think it's a very natural transition. It's not even that some, it's not something that we have to, you know, sit down and think about. It's, it's rather something that happens by itself almost because the way we operate, the way we communicate, the way we work, the way we have meetings, uh, it's all digital or a lot of it is now digital and it's just part of our daily life. You know, more consumers shop from online. Uh, out of those consumers, more consumers shop from their phones. So that affects how you, you know, produce your content, uh, what kind of content you produce, for example, more videos, uh, less written text, unfortunately. Um, now, for example, longer YouTube pieces are trending. So uh, I think our lifestyle really drives, you know, how fashion or any other in industry evolves. Um, I think it's also about, so for example, during, um, it's it's a lot of about, it's about adapting. So during coronavirus, we were not able to shoot as much uh, physically because of the restrictions, of course. Uh, so we did a lot of cool animated campaigns, worked with a lot of, you know, uh, AI artists. So it really forced us to get out of that box when we were physically limited and explore the digital space more. Um, so yeah, I would say our current reality, which is uh, more and more digital and digitally driven is influencing the way we you know, uh, handle any industry. But I'm not sure if this answers your question, please let me know. No, no, that made sense to me. And something yeah. else I was wondering about also given all of your experience in the fashion industry and of course like the luxury brand market, um, is there's this phrase going around that Dubai can be um, positioned to be like the fifth fashion capital of the world. And I was curious to hear, is that something that uh, do you think is like an accurate statement? Um, and the other thing I would wonder is also uh, how does Dubai reflect um, trends and evolutions across Middle East fashion? Um, I mean, Dubai is definitely an amazing hub and place to be right now and extremely progressive uh, for many reasons, because, you know, it attracts because of this amazing um, safety and living standards it attracts great minds from all around the world. At the same time, uh, the government here is extremely, you know, progressive, extremely receptive. They, they do want to be, you know, the new uh, tech hub. So they have so many different programs that encourage, um, you know, young entrepreneurs and interesting projects. Uh, it's just a great place to be. And uh, everything is extremely inspiring. And there are a lot of uh, incredible people with cool ideas. But uh, if I can go back to your previous question, I was just, you know, thinking as well about digital and how we can dive more into that space. I guess another great difference from physical to digital is data and how uh, so many more things became measurable. So before, for example, way before, you know, social media and uh, our casual use of internet, um, it would be, you know, you have an ad and then uh, it, it's just a lot more, it, it was a lot more difficult to measure uh, how many conversions, for example, some ads, some banner, I don't know, next to some store yields. Uh, compared to now now you can track it's just incredible how much you can track you can see uh, specifically from your campaign from using some discount code or in many other ways you can see uh, who clicked how long did they spend on the site did they read the whole article did they view your uh, videos did they view your images did they actually go from your site from your publication to uh, the online shop and did they buy so you can measure you know views clicks conversions everything um, and more and more brands and all of the big players, of course, um, are you know very very involved in that way, and they know exactly how and what to measure. And uh, that's also how you know the influencer market evolved a lot. Before it was just like you know you have a million followers, here's money, promote my product. Now we understand it doesn't work like that. You measure 
do they have the actual audience that uh, that's useful to those brands or uh, audience with a buying power? So there's so many criteria. And now I understand that even someone with you know 2,000 followers can be a lot more powerful for your brand than someone with a million followers. So there's a lot of data and analytics and a lot of KPIs. And I think that's a very key way in which every industry and fashion industry uh, specifically shifting. It's really cool to see how, you know, the fashion industry in particular is shifting because of like the, the influx of all of these KPIs. And um, I think it's also really interesting and something that I didn't even like was not conscious of before starting a podcast. Like I actually think even starting a podcast made me really aware of like, oh, you can see, you know, where your listeners are from or you can see, you know, which parts of the episode that the listeners like the most and things like that, that I think is just insight that I didn't expect I would be able to gain from you know, like platforms like Anchor, where me and Swalia host our podcast. But I think something that's also really interesting that you noted was sort of being able to understand like where users or consumers are from and like the, I guess, status quo of what those consumers of that brand are, right? So like if they have buying power, if they don't and things like that are just like metrics that I would not have thought are something that's like, you know, very commonplace, especially for, um, you know, fashion in particular. But it's really cool to hear how that's something that brands are able to see and definitely capitalize off of in terms of like their growth. So that's like really interesting to hear as well. But I did want to transition a little bit into your work with Shiny actually in starting um, the first luxury NFT marketplace in UAE and wanted to sort of talk about your journey transitioning into something more blockchain and tech oriented, especially given that, again, like your background was in journalism and in production. So um, I wanted to ask like how um, I guess that transition was for you and what led you to pursue your initial interest in NFTs and maybe how you felt like Dubai was a good market to capitalize upon? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think it was 2021 when I uh, I started feeling and I love my job at Sourclare so much. And uh, the reason why I left and started my own projects, not because I didn't like it, but because I felt like I'm ready for something of my own. It's time now to work on my own projects, my own ideas. Um, so I made this transition. And uh, when I was thinking, actually, while I was a software player, I was thinking, you know, what can I do that's capture, that captures all of my interests, all of my passions. And uh, during COVID, I think a lot of us were doing a lot of courses and learning a lot of things. So I was uh, really into investing and I was learning a lot about stocks and bonds and uh, then slowly transitioned into crypto and just learning about all those things. And it was uh, fascinating. And uh, my partner and who we founded Shiny Wiz uh, was uh, working at a company with a lot of a lot of his colleagues were talking about crypto and again investments. So a lot of conversations re revolving around that topic. And um, when we found out about NFTs and it was quite early in the game, uh, it just blew my mind the way this technology shifts, uh, just changes the game rules for creative specifically. And uh, especially me working so closely with amazing digital artists that have our flair. I knew exactly what kind of issues they uh, dealt with. So a lot of them had were struggling to monetize because it's very difficult. You know, you can uh, right-click save something, and you know who is the actual owner. Uh, what are the what are the usage rights? There are a lot of issues uh, in the provenance in the provenance um, sector. So NFT really resolved that pro problem in a sense that it 
first establishes who is the actual owner of the work. So even if someone, you know, screenshots or right-click saves, you still can use the blockchain technology to figure out who is the actual owner, when it was bought, who it was produced by. Uh, at the same time, you can integrate a royalty uh, program where an artist can keep making money with their art for the lifespan of that piece. So if we think about, you know, buying a piece by Monet, uh, imagine that Monet was still alive. He sells a piece, and that was the only—that's the only time when he makes money on that piece. But uh, it was NFTs, uh, and I think that's something really amazing for the artists. And a side note that a lot of amazing creators and artists, uh, unfortunately, didn't make much money on their work because you know when they sold it, it was only worth like nothing, hundred dollars, let's say. And then uh, in years and years and years, when the interest grows, uh, it's worth a lot more. So with the royalty uh royalty program integrated into the smart contract uh you can set lifetime royalty for the artist so every time the work changes hands uh the artist makes money which i think is amazing and really fair uh so that was kind of the original idea i was like it's perfect it's uh my interest in tech it's my interest in you know investment and different tools it's my interest in art and working with creators it's perfect so uh the idea the original idea was to create a luxury marketplace, which evolved a lot since that point. That was just the original direction. So uh, a lot, a big part of entrepreneurship is testing. So you launch something and then it works or it might not work. Most likely it won't work. So you have to pivot and you have to analyze why it didn't work and you have to choose a new direction. So we've um, done a lot of tests and our initial model actually did not really take off because actually for a multiple multitude of reasons, which will take another podcast to explain, but uh, we slowly and slowly we shifted first towards our own collection, which is called Everyday Goddesses, which was focused on um, growing female influence in the NFT and crypto space, uh, which unfortunately, back when I started the project, only 15% of collectors and around 14% of uh, creators were women. Uh, it's a very male-dominated space, just the way you know art world and uh, finance world, unfortunately, are dominated by men. So the idea was to bring female likeness and female or female creators at the front uh, and that's why we launched Every Goddesses, which uh, was an amazing, amazing experience. And we're still, you know, uh, working with that community and still have initiatives. And we just a few days ago launched another uh, collab with another artist. So it, it's an amazing community of very quiet, not only women, women and men who uh, are united by passion for amazing digital art and uh, uh, also growing female influence in the space. So for example, uh, something we did was Raya was actually, we sponsored the cohort during the summer schools, so we sponsored 30 female learners. And also uh, we were mentors during the summer sessions and did a bunch of masterclasses about digital arts and tech and web uh, three in general. So that was an amazing experience. And that's kind of like our everyday goddess chapter. Uh, and then Shiny evolved into uh, really a one-stop agency for Web3. So uh, was advising and help with development, uh, smart contracts. Uh, so yeah, that's how this whole uh, business evolved. It was a very, very interesting journey and still is a lot of learnings every day. Let me know if it makes sense. <laughs> yes, I love how thorough your answers are. It's so interesting to see how different things connect, which is why I really like hearing about how you you connect your experience to your work. Um, it really allows us to understand what the intention behind um, every decision that you chose to make was. Um, and I'm so glad you mentioned like the cohort um, at School of Humanity. I remember um, hearing about the girls who were in crypto, like they are a very close-knit cohort. I definitely think it was a really um, like enriching educational experience for them. And I really love that type of initiative. So I think like in one way um, we're like, 
trying to I guess attract people just in general to like the NFT or Web3 space. But I think uh, building partnerships with educational institutions or organizations is also a really interesting way um, to sort of allow girls to break into this space. I think of like organizations like Code with Classy or Girls Who Code, they do something similar where um, they make tech more accessible through having an educational um, experience like boot camps, things like that. So I really love those types of initiatives just in general. Um, something else I was also thinking about was uh, how do you, uh, from your experience, what do you think have been like the main barriers uh, or struggles for women to be able to break into the NFT space? Um, oof, it's also a whole uh, conversation of its own, but uh, just as I said, as Unfortunately, in the traditional art world, art world, there are a lot of gatekeepers. I think same way in the NFTs. Uh, in general, the barrier of entry is very high. Um, still, to this day, this technology is not very user friendly. Uh, there are a lot of steps. There are a lot of ways to get scammed. And with women already being uh, not as big of a part of the art world, um, it it naturally kind of led and evolved that way. So it start from the very beginning, it was dominated by men. Um, uh, at the same time, yeah, a lot of technology and lack of education also, uh, I think when we answer this question, we need to think about the whole core issue of why there are fewer uh, women developers, because those are not the professions that are, you know, encouraged when you're a young girl. And uh, maybe it's crazy to someone in, you know, in the US or here, here in Dubai when it's so open and you know equal but in a lot of countries and even during our cohort there are a lot of girls who uh whose parents wouldn't want them to be you know coders and work with tech they would want them to be you know choose some more traditional and I am putting quotation air quotation marks uh traditional careers for women to be a teacher and stuff like that so it's not something that's encouraged and um yeah I think it's socially evolved that way and that's why it's essential to work to provide resources, uh, provide scholarships for women who are interested in those topics, provide uh, access to information, just, you know, mentor, answer questions, uh, just provide a lot of resources for women to choose this path if they're interested, because uh, it's it's difficult enough to to be in tech and you know it's it's quite a complex topic but when you also have to overcome this whole social barrier of uh you know someone's approval or disapproval it's a whole another layer that's completely unnecessary and doesn't exist for men it exists for women which is completely unfair but something that we're working on changing um but yeah i think it's a it's a much much uh deeper question it's not just about nfts it's a lot of different industries where that are traditionally not dominated by women dominated by men and something that's shifting we see we see this shifting and uh i hope that we will continue to see it shifting yeah and i really liked um again how you mentioned like what are some solutions to be able to like solve this like mentorship resources and i think scholarships is a very integral one um from just other industries I've also looked at that are really male dominated. For example, Formula One seems completely unrelated to technology, but I read like one of the main issues why there aren't more female Formula One drivers because it's very expensive to go into race car driving. Um, but uh, there's like been like entire organizations that have uh, created like scholarships and funding that will literally pay for everything related to the cost of being a race car driver um, to lower the barrier of entry for women. So I think the point on scholarships is really integral to allow women to be able to break into the tech field. And some yeah, other there are a lot of, 
Yeah, so there are a lot of girls. I mean, even again from the summer experience, there are so many girls who are amazing and insanely gifted. Like a lot of them were, you know, way ahead of definitely myself when I was their age and they were so interested in tech and just trying hungry, you know, for any kind of resource, for any kind of advice, mentorship. So uh, there are definitely a lot of promising young uh, women who are embarking on this journey and I really have high hopes for them. Yeah. And something else I was actually curious about just for like the NFT space in general, um, how do you think a blockchain uh, has like revolutionized like the idea of ownership for creators? I mean, just the simple idea that for the first time in history, there is provenance, you know, on blockchain. So that's something that you cannot, uh, again, to compare to the physical world, if you have a certificate that you own a specific Monet piece, and then, you know, the piece is on fire or the documents are on fire. And how do you prove that it's your, that it was yours? How Or how do you prove that, uh, you know, a stolen piece is actually yours? It doesn't belong to that person, it belongs to you. Uh, but with blockchain, the whole issue is solved because it's, unalterable you cannot change it um it's there forever if you're the owner you're the owner um and uh the the fact that it's so decentralized you know that not one no one single entity is controlling this but rather um yeah it's this decentralization and also the provenance would be would be my answer let me know if this makes sense i'm i'm, I'm asking because uh i think especially in the space when we use a lot of jargon. So I'm trying to make it like super simple and always give an example, but uh, it can be a bit confusing. So please ask me questions and you can cut no, this out so if you want. <laughs> I really appreciate just like the simplicity of your answers because no, it's definitely not filled with technical jargon. I just like love the simplicity of the way that you explain things because it definitely makes sense to me as someone who's not, you know, again, like super active in the crypto or NFT space, but just finds it really interesting. Um, but yeah. yeah, I just want yeah. to talk a little bit more. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, just, just to add to this, um, another example, yeah. and now we're just talking about NFTs in the context of art, it's very important to remember that this is just one application, right? And the application mm -hmm. that uh, became popular, popular from the beginning, but actually it's a technology. And I really believe that in the future, uh, it will not be necessarily the shape that we are familiar with. NFTs will not exist in that shape, but maybe... Uh, and it really makes sense for it to be integrated in our everyday life and for users not even know that this is NFT technology and blockchain technology being used. Um, so, for example, you know, documents and legal documents, house deeds, stuff like that. So everything um, will be probably on blockchain and users, again, might not even know this. I think it's about uh, provenance. It's about decentralization, the two keywords. Yeah, I've, I have a lot of questions, actually, about that um, and exploring that more. But. I guess um, one of my biggest questions like coming into this episode was also just wanting to ask like, how do you run a company where the basis of the company itself is decentralization? So I guess what protocols are put into place to ensure safety on and balance on all sides, you know, bet between both the investors and the people buying the NFTs and also the creators of the NFTs? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the keys here are first transparency because your community is you even call it a community, right? You don't even call it the customer base. It's a community. Uh, and it's very essential and it's essential to be transparent, essential to communicate to them. So that's, you know, a key uh, point and a key difference as well between uh, Web3 and Web2. And also, uh, this is something that is completely new. And we need to remember that we're you know, literally in a newborn 
uh, industry and a newborn field. And it's important to always double check and you know, check any kind of news and new legislations that come out because it's it's extremely difficult. Every country has completely different rules. Some countries have no rules at the moment, so it's a lot of uh, a lot of gray areas. So it's important to um, assess this correctly and ask questions, consult with. Uh, again, it's very difficult to even find who to consult with because it, it's it was literally created. Okay, it was not created yesterday. But it was created very recently. So a lot of uh, a lot of gray areas and a lot of checking and a lot of you know, uh, just making sure that everyone is safe and everything is uh, in a good shape. That makes a lot of sense. And I, yeah, especially being like a very recent technology, I can assume that um, the field is definitely evolving at like a really rapid pace. And um, it definitely makes sense that, you know, the ways in which like even regulation happens is also evolving at a very rapid pace. And so, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But um, I also wanted to kind of ask in terms of, you know, your background kind of in luxury fashion, but um, I was going to ask, I guess, how do you think the rise of NFTs will potentially impact the larger um, luxury arts and goods market? And how do you think maybe Shiny will um, be able to sort of capitalize on changes both, you know, in the NFT space, but also kind of the rise in luxury arts and the development of different types of arts? Uh, yeah, I think the biggest way is, you know, creators have more power than ever before. And right now we're in the bear market, which means, you know, everything is down, the sentiment is a bit down, but uh, when everything is on the rise again, even more people will hopefully enter the space and uh, even more artists will have a chance to go full time with their creative work and their art. A lot of artists even a lot of artists in the space, you know, now because the space is quite volatile, they have day jobs, but NFT technology gives a lot of them uh, a chance to monetize their art, specifically talking about digital artists and uh, make it their full kind of a full time thing, which is really exciting. Um, and with the fashion world as well, there are a lot of cool uh, collaborations uh, of fashion brands with Web3. I mean, we saw projects with um, Tiffany and we saw projects with Dolce Gabbana. There are a lot of uh, cool case studies. Um, so we're excited to see more creative examples and integrations. Uh, I think it's not just uh, blockchain and Web3. I think right now a lot of brands are just testing waters. Um, it's also digital in general. It's also augmented reality, for example. Uh, it's it's gaming. A lot of brands have been working with gaming for, for years now. So uh, for you to be able to wear an outfit by your favorite brand in the game or uh, to a digital meeting with your in your company, I think it's uh, there's just so much space for collaborations and uh, really a creative evolution. And uh, yeah, right, you had the second uh, part of your question, how Shiny will, will capitalize on this. Well, we hope to um, really work work on cool, uh, different products and products that will solve problems because in the new industry, there are a lot of gaps, a lot of pro problems. So we're trying to identify them and develop products that will hopefully help more people um, make their visions come true and, you know, uh, do cool things without risk and also uh, innovate in the space. So really uh, focusing on focusing on development and product development and uh, hoping to work with a lot of uh, amazing creatives and brands. Something else I was just curious about as blockchain as a technology was 
Uh, what do you still see as certain limitations of the technology um, in relation to like the work that you do or in relation to like work for social impact? I remember like reading a couple months ago about how um, Ethereum, if I'm correct, transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake uh, and that enabled yes. them to like have a huge energy reduction because before blockchain received like a lot of criticism for uh, consuming a lot of energy in order to run out of technology. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so second layer, for example, really resolved that issue for Ethereum. Uh, so that was a big, big argument against the space, uh, the environmental, which is obviously something that we need to be thinking about in every industry and everything that we do uh, because of this critical state of our <laughs> world. Uh, but yeah, that issue was resolved. And actually, you know, people talk about Bitcoin being not environmentally friendly, but actually it's not... Uh, it's, it's not a key coin when it comes to NFTs and blockchain. So uh, there are a lot of other, even before um, if layer two happened, uh, there are a lot of different options for different coins that are, you know, uh, they didn't have gas fees that were a lot more environmentally friendly. Um, but uh, I would say another huge barrier is, as I mentioned before, user friendliness. As the industry exists right now and blockchain industry, but for in general, uh, it's extremely non-user friendly. So to buy something, to buy an NFT or, you know, to buy crypto, you need to uh, create an account with a Binance or, you know, a like off. You need to create a wallet. Um, there's a specific way you use your wallet when you buy NFTs, like on your phone. So you can't just, you know, go to a website and buy. You need to copy a link. I, I mean, I can go into technical details, but it's just not user friendly. It's not as simple as you go now to a website to buy a dress and you just uh, press your Apple Pay and it's two seconds. It's not uh, as easy. It's a lot of different steps. Uh, it's also the risk of you mistyping one number, for example, with your wallet and uh, money goes to someone else and you'll never get it with a bank uh you know it bounces back it comes back to you with uh, blockchain was you know transferring uh money in a crypto wallet there's no going back so it's it's really risky it's not user-friendly there are a lot of scams always <laughs> so and they rapidly evolve as well so a lot of people in this space get scammed and it's not only people who are you know uncareful or anything there are a lot of there's a lot of social engineering going on uh you know screen sharing people who make a screen share and then you reveal some confidential information or connect your wallet to their own thing and there's a lot of risk of losing money and a lot of people unfortunately um, became victim to that so user friendless in general is something that this industry needs to fix because at the moment uh, for an average user it's just not I don't want to say it's not worth it but it's just it's just very stressful it's very difficult it's a lot of learning it's not um, seamless at all <laughs> So I would say that that's a huge, huge um, area that needs to be needs to be improved. And also one more thing that I would mention, but that's uh, a very big, you know, very big debate that is ongoing in the space about, uh, you know, how de decentralization functions, that um, it, it's only one side of the coin. There's this equal world and no one, there's no one power that controls resources or power or you know uh decision making but at the same time when something happens like those scams that i mentioned who helps you what kind of authorities do you go to so there's lack of control or lack of you know uh centralization of power but at the same time there's lack of uh accountability so that that's why that space unfortunately as it is today attracts a lot of uh people with not the best intentions so I think those two things need to be, I mean, they just need time and need a lot of, you know, um, progress 
and evolution and new products and new ideas and new ways of working and functioning. Yeah, that was really interesting to hear your perspective of somebody, as someone who is not really in the blockchain space, to really hear uh, about the barriers that still block people. And I would honestly agree, even from like my perspective, it does feel like um, blockchain is not the most user-friendly in comparison to other technologies like artificial intelligence. Um, and, and I think it's also like just the amount of resources that are available for different technologies. Uh, I think for blockchain, like there's like, uh, more like idea that you have to have already had like an extensive like developer background before you can break into blockchain in comparison to breaking into a different industry. Uh, something else I was also curious about, um, just like as a like observer of the blockchain space is crypto is like seen as like a very like volatile um, space, especially seen as like um, like recent news and everything like that. So I'd be curious to hear like your perspective on how uh, people have been saying that because like crypto can be so volatile and because it can be corrupted, that's actually a large reason why we need crypto and um, blockchain to be integrated into finance today. Uh, sorry, can you, I'm not sure I understood your question. So you're asking why, because crypto is so vol volatile, do I agree if it should be Sorry, I didn't get. Can you? No, uh... no, it's okay. My <laughs> question is, um, is it more just telling like what like advantages does um finance being tied to blockchain um offer today, even though we still see like a lot of volatility and instability with crypto markets. Right. So the advantage is the uh just the speed and simplicity of it. So for example, for me to make an international transfer to you right now. Um, I need a whole bunch of information, you know, your uh, account numbers and with SWIFT codes and the street of your bank and basically a whole bunch of information I need to, uh, depends on the bank, probably send it during the working hours of the bank. Um, I need probably to wait some time for you to be approved as my uh, beneficiary. Um, also, it's going to take probably a few business days for the money to arrive. Then there's also uh, currency. If I'm transferring dirhams to you that are being converted to dollars, probably there's going to be a currency um, conversion that's not going to be super great. So you'll lose money on that. Um, then there's also, so there are a lot of, a lot of factors. It's, it's slower. It's uh, losing money. It's more information. Um, with cryptocurrency, it can be done in an extremely fast way. So I'm, if I'm transferring my ETH to your wallet, from my wallet to your wallet, this is just, you know, a second transaction and all I need from you is your wallet number. So it's a lot, a lot simpler and a lot faster. Um, so I hope that, I mean, I see a, a huge potential in that technology just for the sake of, it's kind of the other side, you know, it's not user-friendly, the industry, but at the same time, if you know how to use it, it is extremely user-friendly. That's interesting to hear. And something else I was thinking about is earlier you were saying uh, art is not the only like vehicle that NFTs can be useful for. So I'd be curious to hear what do you see as some potential like opportunity areas for NFTs specifically that it could serve as a solution or like marginally increase the quality of? Uh, yeah, sure. So as I said, I think any legal documents, that's extremely interesting. So right now, again, a lot of time and resources are wasted on or spent on, you know, uh, when you need to notarize something or stuff like that. But if if documents are on blockchain, for example, even I'm just trying to give real life examples for things to make sense. But me, uh, when I got a job at uh, Sabar Flair, I needed to attest my diploma from Boston University uh, with the government of the UAE. 
which is amazing. <laughs> but uh, it's a it's a process, you know, and uh, it's a lot of, you know, sending emails and confirmations back and forward. Um, it takes time. Uh, it takes if I don't want to deal with it, I pay for some service. So there are a lot of services that do it for you. It costs money. It's not cheap. So there are a lot of a lot of steps again. But uh, maybe this could exist on blockchain where uh, nothing needs to be notarized, nothing needs to be attested. It's just on blockchain and they can see the proof that I went to Boston University. They know that this is uh, true information that cannot be altered. That's a fact. So uh, a lot of things like that in our life that uh, basically a lot of time wasted documents, we all hate it. This can be resolved with uh, the blockchain technology. And I think a lot of things in logistics as well. It's very interesting how um, everything, basically every step of the way, for example, if it's very uh, complex shipping process or I don't know anything with international trade, this can be very interesting to have it on blockchain. So instead of um, an endless chain of people communicating and again, information can be lost, can be altered, you can have it in a more uh, secure and provable way. So uh, every i guess every area like that that has anything to do with you know storing of information storing of data um yeah and uh, for example we see now very interesting examples as well in cinema and music um for example there are a lot of projects nft projects that are um launching to raise money for their upcoming series so instead of creator going to uh you know big it, it, immediately to investors they're going to they're releasing an nft and if people believe in their idea they help them fund that uh film and then maybe later depending of course on how their smart contract works or you know what their original idea was maybe later they can take uh, a royalty percentage of the profits of the film so you can uh, on an individual level help invest and help uh, fund the film and then later you can take royalties uh once the film hopefully succeeds so things like that. And also for music, the same way, uh, instead of necessarily relying on record companies, um, you can use your fan base to produce a new album. So instead of uh, record company giving you the money up front to, you know, it's very expensive to record an album, a lot of uh, studio time and photo shoots, a, lo a lot of things go into it. And uh, instead, you can be funded by your fan base that already exists and not have to sacrifice a huge cut uh, and give it to a record company. So uh, a lot of interesting applications. I can talk about it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, the credentialing aspect is definitely very relevant to like, especially the education space, even School of Humanity talked about credentialing, like um, how would blockchain help our students with having um, a certified like diploma, especially as they're all international, that's a really useful application. Um, and I think the royalties is also another aspect. I've even heard like, for example, indie artists are starting to like have more ownership over their work, um, their albums, as they're not signing with record labels anymore. So I think that aspect of like royalties and again, credentialization and like ownership is very, very interesting. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you um, is what did you learn from your greatest failure or challenge? Uh, greatest failure or challenge in specifically in the NFT space or in general? Just anything. What I learned from my greatest, uh, oof, that's a, that's a difficult line. To I mean, I think a, kind of a general, rather than a specific uh, event, maybe a general theme in life that um, we always, it's always remember to, it's always important to remember that we see you know, the final result, the final picture, but there's so much that <laughs> happens before that point. So it's important to uh, uh, stay persistent and keep going. And uh, 
films and you know shows make us believe otherwise but nothing happens overnight i promise and i was just talking about this with my partner the other day that you know it's crazy um in every film that you watch about business that has anything to do with business it shows that you know you open your business maybe there's like one struggle and on the third day everyone comes and they buy everything and you're doing amazing and you're a star it does not happen <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, it does not happen. It takes a very long time. You need to plan a lot. You need to assess risk. Then you need to uh, face a lot of different challenges and a lot of failures and uh, be able to analyze this and then pivot and change and then do it again and again and again and again until it works. Uh, it's a very long process. It um, It's not an easy process. It requires a lot of stamina, a lot of positive thinking, um, good people around you who can motivate you and inspire you but it does not happen nothing happens overnight uh any kind of you know course or anything that says that okay do this course and then five day you'll make six figures it's a lie everything is work and you need to put in this work and you need to um not compare it with the picture that you see the final result of all oh, this this person achieved this by this age you don't know what they went through and how much work they put in to get that yeah. I think that's a wonderful piece of insight to kind of wrap up our episode on. So thank you so much for speaking on our podcast and, you know, coming here today, because I just learned so much and, you know, talking about your initial background in journalism and how that, you know, you gained skills that were kind of transferable to you working with these really crazy brands and working on all of these cool projects. And then you know, stepping into the NFT space, I think you've had a really unconventional but really really interesting career so I just learned a lot through you know not just the work that you've done but also how you transitioned between all of these different projects and all of the insight that you brought so thank you so much yeah of course and I know uh, we talked for a very long time but we did not uh, talk about my new startup <laughs> oh my god I don't know if yes, you want me to yes, take two do. minutes yes, yes. <laughs> um, right because uh, this is something we've been working for the past two months and it literally just launched a week ago so i'm just excited to uh share about it so it started with fashion and now it's uh, well it doesn't end it continues with fashion as well so uh i was really excited to launch something else in the fashion space because i missed it immensely and it's something that i'm extremely passionate about and uh just uh Literally a few days ago, we launched our new project, which is called Wardrobe, uh, which is a sustainable fashion company, uh, essentially an Uber for dresses. Um, and it comes from inspiration of the in environment is a central you know, thing that we have to think about these days. Um, and thinking about what, what I can do in fashion and then being like, do I really want to launch another brand, like produce more stuff? Or do I want to do something that hopefully will... Um, help people be more conscious consumer and at the same time still um, really play around with fashion, express themselves with style. So that's how the idea came about. Uh, and yeah, uh, wardrobe is essentially a platform where you can rent a dress and later on we'll have uh, casual wear as well, uh, just paying a tiny fraction of the price of the piece instead of uh, spending a lot of money and only wearing that once. We've done a lot of user research and again, a lot of data. And on average, uh, women were addressed one to three times, which is just horrible for our planet and horrible for your wallet. So uh, in a lot of countries, I know in the US as well, people are shifting towards shared economies and uh, renting more, especially not you know foundational pieces of their wardrobe, but something for, for an event or for a party that you know that you won't uh, get much use of uh, instead of buying it, rent it. So uh, we already had our first few clients and we're super excited to expand and grow. 
yeah that's so cool to hear because I know I know in the U.S. I've heard about like ThreadUp and how they sort of resell like luxury goods and there's companies like that but I haven't really heard of you know companies working on like renting clothes and I'm not sure if like you have Swalia but that's not something I've come across like I'm sure like you know higher tier influencers and like celebrities will do things like that but I don't think that's something like the average person has access to so it's so cool to hear about that yeah the first thing I thought of was like the same example of like Sarah Blakely she um Mm -hmm. I think she didn't rent it I think she just let people like rent or like lend her wedding dress so I definitely have heard of people lending wedding dresses as they're so expensive but they really only wear them once I thought that was such a cool concept to be able to have that shared experience and it makes a lot of sense especially for dresses that are again very expensive but very rarely worn um and something else I was thinking about also uh, was I've heard of people like renting out like tuxes and suits for like example prom or again like weddings so I was curious like uh, how is that different um, and how is it more easier to do it through like your startup um, in comparison to like the status quo of like just renting a suit? Uh, right so we are not the idea is as we evolve not to just specialize on uh, you know, special event and gowns and stuff like that, but also have ready to wear. Actually, I don't know if you'll need to remove this because it's uh, a, a name, <laughs> but uh, there is an amazing company in the US called Render Runway. Check it out. Actually, it's super accessible and they have different plans, different packages where you can, um, it's quite cool. So it's like on a rotational basis, you can rent items and then you can change them. So every month you can have like four pieces and then you can change them many times. Uh, so it's a really cool company and it's a lot of, uh, I know a lot of girls are using it now. Uh, so how is it different um the idea is to have a lot more pieces not just for you know your wedding or uh when you're a wedding guest but also for you know a christmas party or maybe for a work interview um for i don't know a wedding of your friend that you know that you want you and again uh with digital space being so prominent and social media also mattering it matters to us a lot uh to an average consumer you don't want to appear in the same dress every time and you also want to express yourself through style you're not sure if you know, maybe you want to uh, select a dress that's really out there and really crazy because you'll be like, will I really uh, wear it again? Like, is it really me? But uh, with the rental system, you can also trial and see like, maybe that's you, maybe not. There's no commitment. And I think that's something that's really, um, that's really attractive for younger generation and people who are still establishing, you know, their um, personal style. So that's a very interesting aspect. Uh, we're also trying to be extremely uh, user-friendly. So we have a really convenient website uh, and also provide a very personalized service. So not only you can come to our website and choose a dress that works for you, but also uh, you can DM us or send us a message uh, through our website to get help from us. So you can tell us you know, what kind of event you're going to and give us your measurements or your sizes. And we can actually help you choose something that works and also help you uh, match it with bags and accessories and stuff like that. So really um, a personalized service and also, an expanding uh, stock base where you'll have a lot of different products and hopefully soon a lot of ready-to-wear pieces too. Um, And yeah, the idea is, and I think a lot of modern consumers shift towards that, consumers that care about being conscious, uh, conscious consumers to have a capsule, amazing foundation wardrobe, and then for um, crazy pieces for you know, parties and birthdays and events, or maybe sometimes you just feel like you want to wear something cool uh, to rent that piece instead of buying and cluttering and uh you know consuming unnecessarily yeah i love that aspect of not having to commit to a piece of clothing but still having the 
opportunity to experiment and express yourself I think that's a really interesting insight and way to approach this because I even remember like when I was younger like when we would go to weddings like sometimes we would just like buy like fancy shoes and I'd wear them once and return them right like you have to go through that whole process of like having to return it versus like if you just trial it that is already integrated into not having to commit to that piece long term and not having to um, add more items to your closet yeah and also just adding on to the point of like you know, like cluttering and like, you know, having space, especially as people are, you know, wanting to explore minimalism more and, you know, don't want crazy overloaded closets, right? So I'm sure that's something that would benefit people, especially like in bigger cities and people who have like smaller sort of living situations. So that definitely feels, you know, applicable in a big city like Dubai. Yeah, for sure. So we're excited. Uh, Maybe the next time we talk, uh, we'll have more amazing news. Right now we just launched and uh, there's a lot of work ahead of us. And uh, we're excited and ready for all of it. Yes, I'm so excited for you. And like once again, thank you so much for sitting down with us today and recording. I learned so much from your experiences, from like a technological aspect, even just the way that you think about fashion and marketing media. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course. Of course, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you guys were amazing and all the questions were super well thought out. And I can see that you did your research. And yeah, really, thank you for all the work you put in.